welcome to the Church in the Peak podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, visit churchinthepeak.org. Lord, come and speak to us this morning. Come and show us your heart, Lord. As you've already done during worship, Lord, we want to know more about you. We want to learn of your heart for us. I pray you just speak to us this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Where's my water? Here. So, we are going back to our story about the children of Israel this morning. And so far, as we've been uh, looking in Exodus, uh, it has been an amazing roller coaster of a ride. So, the people have been in slavery in Egypt. They've come out. They've gone across the Red Sea amazingly. Uh, God's provision for them has been amazing. And uh, these stories, as we've been looking at them over the weeks, are full of excitement and wonder and incredible stories of God's, God's provision and God's hand on his nation. And then suddenly things begin to calm down. They're in the promised land or on the verge of the promised land and uh, God comes and starts to speak to them about the law and uh, we're going to be looking over the next few weeks about the Ten Commandments and uh, what God speaks to them about and suddenly from this exciting adventure you can begin to read these um, chapters, the next few chapters and think, oh this is tough going. But I just pray this morning that as we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 19, I just pray that God will come and speak to us because within within uh, these few chapters, there is a real um, picture of God's heart for his children, for the children of Israel, but also for his heart for us. And that's what I really want to try and uh, speak to you about this morning. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and then camped in the wilderness. And they camped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words, of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and told the people and consecrated them and they washed their garments. And he said to them, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Okay, we'll leave it there. So this amazing picture of God coming down onto Mount Sinai. There's the smoke, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets. It's an amazing picture. Amazing picture of God's presence. And this is the key to what God is going to be speaking to the children of Israel about in the next few chapters. Exodus 29 verse 46 says, I am the Lord their God, talking about the children of Israel, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. And that is the whole point of the next few chapters. God did not rescue the children of Israel primarily because he had compassion on them in their slavery, although he did. Or he also did, the primary reason was not that he had spoken to Abraham and told him they would come into the promised land. Those are not primary reasons, they are reasons. The primary reason is that God wants to dwell amongst his people. For the first time, God is bringing himself down to the earth and saying, I am going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Verse 4 says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to what? Canaan? The promised land? No, myself. I have brought you to myself. This is God and man coming together. God's presence is with his people. Israel's ultimate destination was not the land of Canaan, but it was to God himself and his presence with them. He came and descended on Mount Sinai. He set his home at the heart of the Israelite nation. Look at the wonderful words that God uses towards his people in this chapter. Verse 5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to God. Now, I'm not a great one for using Hebrew words and Greek words, but as I was reading up, there is just the most fantastic word that describes what God is saying here. And it is a Hebrew word, and it's segula, S-E-G-U-L-L-A-H. I'd never heard of it before. But it describes perfectly what God is saying to his people here. And what Sigula means is, 
It's the private treasure collection of a king. A private treasure collection of a king. And that is what God says to his people. You shall be my private treasure collection. That's what he says to the children of Israel. What an amazing revelation that God suddenly comes to his people and says this. He's taken them out of the land of Egypt. He says, you are my possession, my treasured possession. It's so personal. And this is what he refers to. And the amazing thing is that this word is the same word that is used in the New Testament to describe how God feels about us that we as Christians are his treasured possession it's the same Hebrew word 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says you us are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession hallelujah that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Hallelujah. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hallelujah. What God says to Israel at this moment is, you're my treasured possession, I'm your king, and you're my treasured private collection, my private possession. You know, if you've got treasure, you look after it. In our work, we deal with lots of people who have lots of treasure. And they look after it. It's hidden away in a vault. It's insured. Very few people get to see it. It's precious. That's how God views his children. You are precious to God. You're part of his treasured collection. You're his possession. You belong to God. You are his treasured collection. You may not feel like it. And most of the time we don't feel that we're a treasured collection of God. We think we're a bit, probably a bit of a pain in his backside. We're a bit of a nuisance. But he says, no, you are treasured to me. You are my treasure. It's so important for us to understand that. Titus 2 verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But actually, you know, that word workmanship in the New Living Translation is masterpiece. I think that's better. You are God's masterpiece. Now, the enemy will tell you that you're not. The enemy will tell you that you're a drawing of a three-year-old that you stick on the fridge and you tell them it's, it's really good. But you don't know what it is. It's just a load of scribbles. But you, that's really good. You stick it on the fridge. Wow, it's brilliant. No, we're talking here about a serious masterpiece. The faint painting that got sold in Christie's a few weeks ago, that's a masterpiece. 70 million pounds, that's what you are to God. You are a masterpiece. 
Why? Because he created you in his own image. You are created in God's image. You're a masterpiece. You're a precious treasure of the king. And it's so important for us to understand that's how God views us because the enemy will come the whole time and tell you that you're nothing like that. That you've let God down again, that you're not worthy, that you can't come into his presence, you shouldn't go to group, you can't do this, you can't pray, what is the point? You're a hopeless sinner. And God says the whole time, you need to understand. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. He is a liar from the beginning. Listen to what I am saying. You are my treasured possession. And the children of Israel were God's treasured possession. For the first time, he came down and he... he dwelt with them he dwelt with them how did he dwell with them exodus 25 verse 8 says like this let them make me a sanctuary that i may dwell in their midst and if you go through the chapters next to uh 25 i think it's 25 to 30 there's five chapters on how the children of Israel have to make a sanctuary for God to be with them. And it's incredibly complicated. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, all the the rules and regulations about that, which is inside the temple, which is inside the sanctuary. And so it goes on. There's five chapters of it. All about the curtains being a particular color and it has to face this way and the cherubim, the seraphim and the gold and the blue and the purple. Huge rules and regulations. And even after all that, the chief priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And even when he went in, they had to have a rope tied around his waist so that if God's power came, they could pull him out. Once a year. Once a year. Listen, we can come into God's presence every moment of every day. That's the amazing thing that God has broken all those rules and regulations, broken the law away. He says, now you can come into my presence. As we worship this morning, what are we doing? We're in God's presence. Steve brings that beautiful song about his blood in our veins. I've had that transfusion. That is truth. We're in God's presence. He is talking to us. He is speaking to us. You don't have to wait once a year. You don't have to wait for the minister to say, okay, now it's time you can come into my presence. You can come into his presence anytime, any place, anywhere. You know my secret place at work. I've told you before. Toilet. <laughs> I have a difficult meeting. Where do I go? In the toilet. I pray. Trap one. Lord, be with me. Give me wisdom. Give me grace. Give me favor. Anywhere. And it's for us. It's for us. And so often we stand outside. So often we say, I'm not worthy. I've had a bad week. This happened. That happened. I haven't read my Bible this week. I haven't prayed. Does any of that exclude you from coming into God's presence? No. 
Why? Because it's not about how good you are. It's about how good Jesus was. It's his righteousness, not yours. And we need to understand that and get that into our heads. And I speak to myself as much as I speak to you. Because the whole time the enemy will come and tell you you're not good enough to go into God's presence. And he says, yes, you are. Yes, you are, because it's about Jesus and his righteousness. And he's given you the robes of righteousness that mean you can come into my presence and be accepted straight away, wherever you are. Be it the toilet at work, whatever it is, kitchen sink, it doesn't matter. Because the presence of God is not external. It's inside you. The Israelites had to go to the sanctuary. They had to go into the temple. There's loads of rules and regulations about sprinkling blood. Read the five chapters. It will drive you wild. But you know what's great? Is that as you read those five chapters, you think, Lord, what have you done for us? That I have free access into the presence of the king. Free access. That's not even in my notes, that bit. So, five chapters on the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was really, really important because it signified two really important things. First of all, it's the place that denotes God's presence. So the divine king is in residence. And that is really important, not just for the children of Israel, but it's really important for all the other nations of the earth. That they know that Jehovah is with his people. It's important for the people and children of Israel, absolutely, but it's also important. He is enthroned on the ark in the Holy of Holies, really symbolic to other nations. God's presence with his people is carried in the Ark of the Covenant. Secondly, it's really important because it's symbolic of a return to relationship between God and his people. And if you read through those five chapters, you will see that it's a picture, actually, of the Garden of Eden. So many of the symbols point to the Garden of Eden. A return to paradise where God's relationship with man was pure and unadulterated before sin came in. And this is a picture, this this presence of God, of him trying to recreate that with man. The east-facing entrance, guarded by the cherubim. These are just a few that I wrote down. The gold, the tree of life, is a lampstand. The tree of knowledge, the law. God restoring relationship and covenant with his people. This is important for us to understand and points forward to our own salvation as the words used in Exodus are the same as they're used in the New Testament. God's presence with us. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But the important word in that quote is dwelt among us. Because if you look at what that actually means, it literally means pitched his tent. The Greek word means tabernacled among us. So this is a picture of what God was doing with Israel. His presence was with them. In the New Testament, and for us as Christians, God is saying, what I'm doing is I'm pitching my tent in your heart. I'm making my tabernacle in your heart. That's what I'm doing by the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, I come and I live inside you. Where do I live? I live in the tabernacle of your heart. I'm with you. I'm inside you. I'm no longer external. You don't have to go somewhere to find me. I'm in you. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not Christ outside me. I don't go and read a book about it. He's in me. Hallelujah. Where you go, the presence of God goes with you. Wherever you are, at work, at school, at home, it doesn't matter. The presence of God is with you. Absolutely, because he's tabernacled himself in your heart. Hallelujah. What an amazing salvation. Hallelujah. No wonder I get excited. Bless him. What's he doing? He's trying to restore paradise. He's trying to restore that, pu- that beautiful relationship that he had in the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's skewed because of sin. It's never going to be perfect until Jesus comes again. But that's what he's doing. He's saying, as I had my tabernacle with my people, the children of Israel, so I want to do that with you. Listen, we sang this morning. I wrote it down. Your name is hope. Where? Inside you. Your name is hope inside me. He lives in you. No longer external. He lives in you. Where you go, the presence of God goes. You may not know it. You may not understand it. It doesn't matter. It's true. You can have an effect wherever you are because you have the presence of God with you. Don't think you don't affect things. Because you do. You can go into difficult meetings and the presence of God can be with you. I was telling my group on Monday, I had a meeting I had two people at work who'd had a big row with each other and they hadn't spoken to each other for quite a while and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And so I knew I had to deal with it so I said, right, I want a meeting with you next week, both of you. Five o'clock in the morning, the Lord woke me up, as he does. It's always five o'clock, isn't it? And he said to me, the key is forgiveness. He has to forgive her and she has to forgive him. And when you say that, he will say to you, but I'm letting her off the hook. And you have to say to him, no, you're not. You're letting yourself off the hook. It was that clear. It was like I was reading a book. It was crazy. So... When God speaks to you like that, I don't know about you, but I didn't go back to sleep anyway, so it's on my mind. So I'm thinking, Lord, I can't quite believe it's going to be like that. So I go into my secret place at work, and I pray before the meeting, 
and I go into the meeting and uh, I said, look guys, we need to sort this out. So the meeting went on a little bit and we weren't getting anywhere. So I said, I thought, here we go, Lord. (laughs) So I said, Rob, the thing is, the key here is that you've got to forgive her. And he said to me, but if I forgive her, I'm letting her off the hook. Honestly, I promise you, that is what he said. And I said, no, Rob, if you forgive her, you're letting yourself off the hook. You're letting her off the hook, yes, but you're letting, actually, what you're doing is letting yourself off the hook. And it was as black and white as that. Now, from that, the conversation went forward, and we were able to resolve that situation, and they ended up hugging each other, and, uh, you know, we went forward. It was a huge, massive step forward. And I had two guys with me, and they came out and they said to me, Neil, I don't know where you got that from, but that was amazing. <laughs> I promise you. And one of them said to me, you should have the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and, it was, and I was able to, Richard, who, who I work with, he knows I'm a Christian. And I said, Rich, I prayed about this so much, I just felt that's what I should say. And he said, well, it did the trick. Now, the thing is this. Where you go, God's presence is with you. Where you go. If you invite him in to meetings, you invite him in to difficulties, you invite him in to situations, he will be with you. He will give you the words to say. And sometimes you don't even know where those words are coming from. I would never have said that to those two people, ever. It's, it's just not, I just wouldn't. Not in a secular situation like that. Because it's, those words are kind of Christian words not particularly secular words. So I know I would never have used them. So it was, it was a God moment. Thank God that he is with us and can sort things out like that. So now I'm completely lost. Yeah, God wants to make our home with us. He wants to dwell with us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells within you. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Now the problem with us being God's temple is that we have to look after that temple. So there is a responsibility that comes to us as Christians. And Paul talks about this in Corinthians how you look after your body, how you look after the temple. But spiritually, there is another side to that, which is that Jesus comes and he puts the throne, his throne in your heart. But we can put other things on the throne of our heart and not Jesus. There is a battle for the throne of your heart. There is a battle. And the enemy will use anything that he possibly can to get something else on the throne of your heart. Be it ambition, be it money, be it job, be it whatever. It can be anything. It can be a hobby. What it does, it takes away the central place of Jesus on the throne of your heart. And that is what we have to protect 
Now, in all of our hearts, we know what the things are that take us away. They don't have to be huge things. They can be really small things. But materialism can take the throne of our heart. We can be caught up with having the next thing. I must have that. I must have this. And we have to protect that throne of our heart to make sure that Jesus is centrally on that throne and stays on that throne. There is a battle. The enemy will try and dislodge Jesus from the throne of your heart. And that's really important. You know, God just needs to come and speak to each of us. He just needs to come and reveal to you what potentially takes the throne and when you know what that is you need to pray against it and let the Holy Spirit come back in you can say Lord I've let this come in I'm kicking it out I want you on the throne of my heart absolutely central absolutely central you know it talks a lot in Exodus about God being a jealous God and for me, when I think about God, it's not a word that I immediately associate with God, but it says loads of times, I was reading it last night, he is jealous for our affection. He is jealous for the people. That's why when he brings the Ten Commandments, which someone else is preaching on, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And time and time again, as the children of Israel muck it up and worship other things, it it comes back and says, do you not know that I am a jealous God? You shall have no other gods before me. I want your affection. I want your love. And God is jealous for your affection. He wants that affection from you. He's jealous for it. If other things take it away, he will call you back. Put his finger on things. So easy, isn't it? Mobile phones, huge distraction. I speak to myself as well as everybody else. You have everything at your fingertips. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, BBC Sport, whatever it is. But it's all there in your pocket. And we have to balance that. Say, Lord, come and speak to me. Am I wasting time? What am I doing with my time? He is jealous for your affection. Make sure that the divine king is in residence in your heart. At the very center, on the throne of your heart. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, hallelujah, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that's us. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, therefore, we 
have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he has opened for us. Wonderful, wonderful words. The question is, why aren't we confident? Because I don't believe most of the time we are. And there's a a very fine line between confidence and pride. Because we don't like overconfident people. Because we describe that as being full of themselves. So, if you watch I'm a Celebrity, a new guy came in. Hannah watches it, I just sit there. (laughs) (laughs) The bit that I saw... (laughs) No, Hannah's addicted. I'll tell you that for nothing. She's completely addicted. But the bit that I saw, this new guy comes in and he's really full of himself. He's a bit of a know-all. Got all the chat. So what happens is that everybody votes for him to go on to the nasty challenge. See, that's how it works. We don't like people that are full of themselves. Too confident, too cocky. Those are the kind of words we use, isn't it? So he, got, he did the challenge and he muffed it up and he was in tears and brought him down a peg or two. Yes! Everyone sitting at home going, yes, he deserved that. Full of himself. Brought him down a peg or two. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, see? If you want any updates, see Hannah. She knows all about it. But there is a, there is a line between confidence and pride. But the point is this. The confidence is not a confidence born of yourself. It's born of what Jesus has done for you. You are confident, not in the fact that I'm Neil and I can come into God's presence. No. My confidence is in Jesus and what he did on the cross. A hundred percent. I can't come into God's presence at all. I'm a sinner. Saved 100% by Jesus' grace. And that's where our confidence has to be. So there is no pride. And Paul continually comes back to this in Ephesians and Galatians and says, there's no pride here because you cannot have any pride because you were dead. It's only because God came and made you alive to Christ. So make sure your confidence is in Jesus and what he has done. But we have to have confidence in Jesus that we are allowed to enter his presence and come into his presence no matter what we think we've done or what we haven't done. And the enemy will seek to keep you out of God's presence all the time. All the time. He does not want you to come into God's presence. He does not want Jesus to be on the throne of your heart. And that's why there is this battle. Paul talks in Ephesians about renewing our mind. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is renewing our heart, but he's also renewing our mind by changing our worldly thinking into spiritual thinking. And when we get to glory, our mind will be renewed 100%, absolutely. We'll understand so much more. But until then, 
We have to read the word. We have to listen to the truths, as Anne was saying earlier on. Okay, we need to finish. Just to finish, Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus came to preach peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, hallelujah, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Hallelujah. That's your position. That is your position. You're members of his household. You are sons and daughters of the king, and you are his treasured possession. You are his masterpiece. So when the enemy comes and tells you you're rubbish, you come against him and you say, no, hold on a minute. Neil preached about the other week. He says I'm God's masterpiece. And not only does he say it, but the Bible says it as well. I am his masterpiece. I'm his treasured possession. You have to come against the lies of the enemy. You have to stand on the truth of the Bible. You have to do that. Because the enemy will attack, attack, attack. All the time. And put you down and tell you you're not worthy. Let me tell you, you're not. But you are because of Jesus. Hallelujah. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus and his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I love being saved. I love the revelation that you have come and you're inside me, Lord Jesus, on the throne of my heart. And for my brothers and sisters as well, that we are of the household of God. That we are precious to you. I don't understand it, Lord, because I don't feel precious. I don't feel like a masterpiece, but Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Teach us. Teach us, Lord Jesus. Teach us. Help us learn of you. And as your people, we come and say, thank you, Jesus, that you treasure me. Thank you that you found me. Thank you that you restored me. Thank you that when I was lost, you came and you brought me to your presence and you saved me and you drew me to yourself. And as we do that, as we just thank God for his goodness and his grace and his righteousness, there is only one thing to do, and that is to come and worship. So can we have the worship team back? We want to worship, and we want to take communion. And uh, if you'd like to come up as we worship, I want us just to capture something of what God has done for us this morning. And as you come to take communion, we're just coming to God and we're saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm your treasure. Thank you that I belong to your private collection. Your treasured collection. What a wonderful word. So just come and say thank you. I think, I just really believe that's what God wants. Just bless him and thank him. We'd we'd like to share communion with you. So as you come up, We'll just uh, give you communion and we'll worship together. Amen.